futuro. As the rich got into motion, you know, riding their Peloton bikes in the worst months of the pandemic, workers got into gear for a different kind of motion. Hey, what's up, fam? Welcome to In the Thick. This is a podcast about politics, race, and culture from a POC perspective. I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. And joining us from Queens, New York, heck yes, is Luis Feliz León. He's a writer and educator with Labor Notes. Hey, Luis, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be joining you today. And joining us just down the street from me, because <laughs> I'm in Bethlehem, Connecticut, so representing New Haven, Connecticut, is Lauren Cowrie-Gurley, a labor reporter for Vice Magazine's Motherboard. Welcome, Lauren. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you. Okay, so remember, everybody, strange sounds in the background because we're still being pandemic respectful, therefore recording at home and usually barefoot. And there might be some strange Connecticut sounds. I know. <laughs> That's true. You never know. You never know. A bear or something like that. We had the woodpecker show up today. Yo, the woodpecker. Okay. Anyway, look, we're going to be talking about the labor movement, which you've both been writing about and organizing around and what's happening around the country in terms of workers banding together in this moment to call for better working conditions. And I think everybody's kind of noticed it. It's like, there's a strike here. Mm. I mean, I see it mostly on Instagram, which I think is very interesting. Yeah. That Instagram is like the place where I'm seeing labor organizing in different groups, right? Mm. And it's happening during a global pandemic that's really shifted the way we work and the way we think about work. You know, many people are just not willing to accept jobs with starvation wages and bad working conditions. They're finding ways out of it, right? So we're going to get into a lot of the impact that this uh, latest wave of labor actions is having across the country and different industries too. But before we do that, yeah, we wanted to do a little temperature check also. So temperature check is when we just talk about our emotions. Mm. So I'm going to give you some time to kind of get in there. like, what? And they're like, wait a minute. What just happened? Yeah, there's a wait, 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 wait. Emotions? We're like hard-ass labor journalists. So the thing is, is that we did want to do just like an emotional check-in. Like, so where are you at? Because this is a depleting country, mm. sometimes a little exasperating. So Lauren, what's your temperature check down the street in the other part of Connecticut? How, how are you doing emotionally? I have, I've been better, but uh, I have mostly been focusing on my beat. So everything that's going on in the labor world, which feels like a million different things are constantly happening. And a lot of them are, you know, pretty exciting. Um, I think also... I guess in terms of my emotions, it often seems like there's a ton of enthusiasm around things, but then the reality in terms of the laws in this country, the labor laws, what people are able to do, how small actually these strikes are in comparison to the number of workers who mm -hmm. aren't unionized. Mm. Um, I think like only 6% of private sector workers in the U.S. are in unions anymore. All of that is mm -hmm. pretty depressing. And so... When people get excited about things, it's also like always in the back of my head is like, this is like very small stuff compared to, you know, what we had seen in the past century or whatever, yes. which isn't to say it's not exciting or that right. it's bad for people to be excited about it. I think I just try to keep a reality check on as a labor reporter who's covering this stuff and trying to cover it accurately. Hmm. 
Yes, as they say in this country, I call it the U.S. Mambo. It's three steps forward, six million steps backwards. So you're like, oh my God, there's a labor movement. And you're like, right, it was decimated several decades ago. Right. So Luis, what is your temperature check out there in Queens? How you doing? Like, And you don't have to talk about labor. You can talk about, you know, if you had a beautiful weekend and you're feeling inspired by, <laughs> by nature or birds. <laughs> we know what Maria did. All right. Yeah. No, no. no I mean, I, I had an exciting weekend. I was doing a training with an organizer from Arkansas, Magali Nicoli from Venceremos, who organizes poultry workers. Okay. And- hell yes. There's an organization in Arkansas called Venceremos. Go ahead. I'm just like, hello, Arkansas. Go on. You had me at Venceremos. That's what Maria just did. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, so yeah, no, I mean, it was really exciting and energizing because we were talking to about 30 workers and there were a few of them that work in New Jersey and New Brunswick as domestic workers. And they were saying they were going to go on strike today. So I think that you know, to me, in terms of how I'm feeling, I'm feeling excited because of the prospect of the labor movement inching towards a revival. And I think that's necessary to stop, you know, these uh, reactionary movements that seek to undo even the barest, Mm -hmm. you know, reforms that we've had. I'm from the Caribbean. So CLR James wrote a little about how when Europeans were talking about fascism in Europe, he was like, hey, they brought that shit out here first. You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> so so I, I have to bring that perspective. Like I can't claim like an American innocence, yeah. uh, a U.S. innocence about these factors because they're very real. Like, yeah, I'm the descendant of Tainos that were annihilated yep. in Hispaniola. So we've been here before, but still present, as you know, yeah. still very present. Right. Yeah. Yes. Not totally wiped out. So talking about the labor movement that is happening, like whether it's the lack of protection for union workers on the set of the film where Alec Baldwin was acting as a producer. And of course, Mm. uh, those conditions led to the death of a director of photography. And we're going to be talking about that coming up or to the tortillas that you eat, because the tortilleria. Yours, right? The one you love. Let's just say I, well, I I don't like to do product placement, but in this case, (laughs) they're having a labor battle. It's Tortilleria El Milagro based in Chicago. Yeah. And the workers who have realized the kind of demand, because it's growing. And again, I didn't have anything to do with that. It's just a goddamn great tortilla. But the labor conditions are horrible, Julio. Yeah. And it's just like, we want to support the workers who want to keep their jobs. Don't do this. And yet it is invigorating, right, to see that the historical roots of the labor movement are alive in the United States. Right. And and as we were saying, we need to acknowledge the fact that even though contextually it might be less in terms of numbers, but to Lauren's point, there's a lot of movement happening. We are literally in the midst of a huge national labor strike. I mean, that is what's happening. I mean, during this month of October, which has been dubbed Striketober, you know, America, we always have to dub something. What can we, you know, anyway. So during Striketober, over 100,000 workers have gone on strike or are planning to go on strike. And earlier this month, more than 10,000 John Deere workers went on strike for higher wages and protection of benefits like pensions. It was the first major strike in the manufacturing company in 35 years. And it's also important to note that by the end of this year, John Deere projects to earn record profits. Mm, mm, mm. And John Deere workers, they're joined by thousands of other workers in different industries from New York City taxi drivers calling for debt forgiveness, which is something you've been writing about, Luis, to Amazon workers that you've been writing about, Lauren. Also, 
I just need to make a mention, Lauren, you've also reported on HelloFresh, which um, used to be a sponsor of In the Thick. And the moment we started hearing about 1,300 HelloFresh workers trying to improve conditions and unionizing two factory kitchens in Colorado and California... We stopped advertising. Hell yeah. We've ended advertising with HelloFresh. So oh, wow. welcome to Futuro Media. I said, nope, we're done. We're done. <laughs> you got to fix your stuff before you can advertise on our show. Those are just two examples of, you know, Amazon and HelloFresh of workers who are demanding better wages, hours and working conditions. Right. So just to kind of frame this conversation, we want to start with a clip from Chris Larson, who's an United Auto Workers union member and one of the workers on strike from John Deere, who was on Democracy Now! last Wednesday. So let's take a listen. might be important to uh, note also that uh, Deere's in the wake of record profits. They're projected to make between $5.7 and $5.9 billion this year. Uh, they just rewarded their CEO with a 160% wage or salary increase. Um, they gave their investors a 17% quarterly dividend hike uh, back in August. And uh, for a worker like me, over this next six years, um, right out of the gate, I make about 20 bucks an hour, and it's going to be about a dollar wage increase for me, followed up by the end of the six years, about uh, $2. What we're asking for is a fair shake and something equitable. I'd like to quote Walter Ruther here. Uh, we don't want a bigger slice of pie. We want a bigger pie. Because we know that pie is super big. Yeah, there's a big-ass pie that, you know, Mm -hmm. is out there. But listen, this wave of labor organizing has been a long time coming, and we're seeing tons of examples now of industry workers on strike. So, Lauren, help us break all this down. What is driving these workers to stand up and ask for more now? Yeah, so basically during the pandemic, a lot of people stopped working. They were laid off. They were decided not to work. The number of Americans who are people in the country who are working vastly shrunk. And as things have slowly opened up, the number of employers seeking workers has outpaced the number of people who are interested in going back to work. So you end up with what is sort of like a tight labor market where workers have more leverage than they have in recent years or like in recent history to sort of demand more from their employers. So this takes like several different forms. One of the most common things we're seeing is people are quitting their jobs. So for one month, I think it was 4.3 million workers in the U.S. quit their jobs. That's 3% of the entire U.S. workforce. So that's a huge amount of people quitting their jobs. That's a big number. Yeah, I think that's an all-time record. Wow. And they're doing that because... For one, they're fed up. A lot of people are risking their lives for minimum wage during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people in fast food, people who are deemed essential workers. And they have, you know, opportunity now to seek out other jobs. So maybe that's because they got stimulus checks mm-hmm. or on unemployment. They have a little more wiggle room. So that's going on on the one end. A lot of those workers aren't unionized. A lot of those workers are in hospitality and restaurants and fast food where they don't have unions. Mm-hmm. On the other side, you have a small amount of workers who are in unions who saw their contracts expire this year. And they're also fed up, right? They also have been working insane hours during the pandemic. I was talking to a striking worker at Kellogg's who said they hadn't had a day off for like 200 days, including weekends. Wow. They're working 16 hour shifts. And so they're also fed up and they're seeing their companies make 
like we just mentioned about John Deere, like huge profits. I think billionaires during the pandemic got like 63% richer. So like companies are doing really well. They're not getting raises. They're also seeing like workers in fast food get raises and they're seeing people not maybe in the John Deere industry, but people around them being, you know, restaurants offering more money and they're saying, you know, like, wow, we're fed up too. And they're sort of inspired to go on strike. And so I think you've seen a lot of workers walk out at large companies. And I guess I wouldn't say there's like quite a strike wave yet, but we're seeing a lot of strikes being authorized, like gigantic strikes being authorized. So it could end up being really huge. I think what we're definitely seeing is like increased militancy and enthusiasm, like you're talking about on Twitter and Instagram Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. you know, even coming up with this name, Striketober. So that's sort of the backdrop. They learned from Mad Men, get a catchy phrase. It could be like strike member. I'm trying to think of the next month, November. (laughs) Strike member. I I don't know. Luis, what about you? What do you think are some of the conditions that are impacting people to take this job and shove it? Sorry, I just totally like (laughs) dated myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, as the rich got into motion, you know, riding their Peloton bikes in the worst months of the pandemic, (laughs) you know, workers got into gear for a different kind of motion across the country. That's what we're seeing. Damn, that's a line. (laughs) So, you know, like, you know, Lauren just mentioned, you know, there are thousands of workers, uh, farm equipment workers across Iowa, Illinois, Kansas and Colorado and Georgia that have walked off their jobs, joining thousands of cereal workers in Michigan, Tennessee, Nebraska, Pennsylvania. Their coal miners have been on strike in Alabama, approaching eight months, nurses in Buffalo, New York, in Worcester, Massachusetts, and thousands more waiting in the wings, you know, to go on strike. I would agree with Lauren that we're not quite at the moment of a strike wave. To give you a comparison, in 2019, there were 425,000 workers that went out on strike. Right now, we have about 24,000 workers that went on strike for strike tover, mm. right? So it's a small number of people that are out on strike, but there is a generalized sense. Mm-hmm. You know, the spirit of militancy is in the air and that's what people are picking mm. up on. So that's why 30 million workers have quit their jobs from January to August. And why not? Right. Like like you said, uh, Julio, like, you know, take his job and shove it. That's basically the attitude. (laughs) Right. I love this, though. The spirit of militancy is in the air. Yeah. Look, at the end of the day, many of these workers who are fighting to unionize are also fighting for their own safety. And that's what people don't realize is like Mm. any of the good working conditions in this country are a result of workers fighting for it. Yeah. Like, that's what you need to realize. Watch the movie, Mate One. The miners is trying to bring a union to West Virginia, and the coal operators and their gun thugs are set on keeping them out. Watch the movie, Norma Ray. I know. Mm-hmm. You're like, wait, what? We've totally dated ourselves, but I love it. But they're the best. Exactly. So we have seen, basically in this country, a history of terrible, terrible working conditions and really bad consequences. Last week, You know, in a very modernized America, there was a tragic example what happened on set when uh, actor and producer Alec Baldwin, he fired what he thought was an unloaded gun, ended up having a live bullet and killing the cinematographer Helena Hutchins and injuring the director. What had happened was that the unionized workers were basically asked to leave the set six hours later after having been replaced by non-unionized workers Mm. because the unionized workers were 
protesting. They were like, you're making us shoot in Santa Fe, but sleep in Albuquerque. Oh, wow. That's two hours driving in our day that we didn't count for. It's that kind of stuff. Mm. So when it comes to immigrant workers, you know, I just got back from Mississippi, as it were, in the middle of the summer I was there. And just the working conditions, the freezing cold, the, you know, numbness, the repetitive, the feeling like you can't say anything because you're undocumented. And I can't even tell you how many labor horror stories I've been hearing just from people that I know. Labor transportation horrors, food preparation horrors, employment agency horrors. So for the immigrant worker, in fact... Like this notion of striking? Yeah. Impossible. It's like, can we even own our voice? So, Luis, can you talk about some of the implications of these labor strikes when it comes to undocumented? And uh, many of them are essential workers. Absolutely. I mean, I, I live in New York, as you know, and we saw during the pandemic Los Deliberistas Unidos, which kind of coalesced into a movement at the height of the pandemic. Many of the workers themselves hail from places like Guatemala and Mexico and from places like Bangladesh. And they're still organizing. They just recently won, you know, access to the bathroom. Mm. Can you imagine that in the 21st century? Mm. You know, Senator Schumer is trying to divert some of the funding from from the federal level to create rest stops for them so that they have a place to rest in between deliveries. So we saw workers really take to the streets and make demands. I mean, Lauren herself covered a lot of the stories during the pandemic of workers at fast food restaurants and in other places just walking out or at poultry plants, just shutting things down over safety concerns. Yeah, I myself reported for The Nation magazine on a story in Gainesville Georgia, where six poultry workers died from a chemical leak accident working at a poultry plant. Many of them were undocumented. When you read the stories and I spoke to families, they referred to names different than the ones that were printed in the paper because they were, you know, they were known by these other names, assumed names that they worked under, which the company was fully aware of mm -hmm. and exploited and took care yeah. To use that to their advantage, to blackmail them in case they reported any safety irregularities and so forth. Right. So, yes, the conditions that undocumented workers have faced have always been horrendous in this country. But workers have always risen up and they have always found a way to fight back. And they have done that. I mean, I was a high schooler in 2006 and I participated in the big marches in response to the Sensenbrenner bill. Mm -hmm. So there, the pro-immigration marches, yes. Yes. So there has always been that threat of deportation of like severe consequences for, for daring to stand up for your rights and to demand dignity and respect. But people have always met that challenge. And I think we saw that during the pandemic. The only thing that I think is crucial and that, it's why we need a revitalized labor movement is that sometimes these actions happen at the individual level, which Lauren referred to when she talked about, you know, the people that have quit their jobs and have said, fuck this shit. I'm not going to take it anymore. Go fuck yourself. Mm -hmm. And we see that on Reddit all the time. Like there's people yeah. posting <laughs> on Reddit when they quit and their resignation letters. But the difference is when workers are organized, right? That's when they can really marshal their collective right. power to make real changes. It's a larger issue. So, Lauren, what comes up for you when you think about, I mean, the thing that I've been reporting again since the entirety of my career, which is the, <laughs> the condition of immigrant and undocumented workers. And yet 
the absolute hunger and dependence and this country could not function without them reality of this. What mm-hmm. what stands out for you? Actually, I just wanted to mention that one of the first times I saw you anywhere on TV or radio was a PBS clip you did like a long time ago at the Smithfield plant in Tar Heel, North Carolina, where they were unionizing. I like it. Maria Nahosa vaults. <laughs> <laughs> Completely proving that Maria has been working on this. This has been one of her beats forever. That's awesome. <laughs> it was like considered one of the most epic union mm. elections in U.S. history. And that was there were a ton of undocumented immigrants there that they sort of the management pitted against the, the black workers at that largest pork factory in the world. But anyway, you know, I don't specifically cover immigration as it might be, but I, because I cover low wage workers, so Amazon, the gig economy, fast food, I am constantly speaking to workers who are immigrants or undocumented. And I think that it's like sort of maybe over a point that's been made too many times at this point, but I just feel like the issues that they're facing are just so much more compounded by their immigration status or Mm -hmm. the way Mm -hmm. that the rights that they don't have access to. A lot of gig workers are immigrants and they, for example, don't have paid sick time during the pandemic. They didn't have health care. They weren't even guaranteed to make the minimum wage, things like this. You know, when you have lost, right? You have, yeah. o sea, no tienes nada que perder, then you will fight. And so the core of the labor movement is also many of these immigrant and undocumented workers, right? Yeah, it is. And then we talked about, you know, the pandemic. I think what's happened is this has been always the case, right? And this is the reality, but the pandemic has completely shined a massive light on this because these things weren't happening because of coronavirus, this was happening before, but now because it's a matter of life and death, people start realizing, wait a minute, wait, I signed up for this, right? And so that's where the labor movement is starting to move. And it's actually not just happening in the United States. I mean, in November of last year in India, right? 250 million workers, farmers and allies Think about that. 250 million people went on strike against the Modi government's attack on farmer protections, making it the biggest organized strike in history. Right. And let's just step back for a second. Did anyone see those front page headlines in U.S. media last year? Anybody? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not not in the major papers. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, Luis was like they were people were on the Peloton and, and getting their Grubhub, you know, mm-hmm. and making sure that the delivery guys showed up. So like. When you talk about essential workers, but this was the largest. Think about that. 250 million people. And some of these protests are still continuing today in India. But the other thing about all this, speaking about media coverage, there's this notion of a quote unquote labor shortage, that there are not enough workers. But what's really happening is what we've been saying, that this pandemic has given folks the leverage they need to demand better for themselves. So, Luis, after what we've seen since 2020, what lasting changes do you think are going to be happening or do you expect when it comes to workers' rights in this country? Are there going to be changes or is this just like, oh, you know, once we pass this, like we're going to be back to the status quo? Yeah, I mean, I'm hopeful that the honorific of essential worker is actually realized organizationally. 
and workers begin to see themselves as workers and form unions, construction, poultry plants, and so forth. But there are also a lot of workers that are members of worker centers. And that's a crucial layer of the labor movement that's important to recognize, Mm -hmm. that they do a lot of the organizing that goes unrecognized. So these domestic workers that I mentioned at the outset that were going to go on strike, you know, they work with very rich families. And what they're trying to do is band together and say, look, we're going to demand all of us collectively $20 or none of us is going to clean your house. Those are the kinds of solidarities that we need to build so that we can have a multiracial working class movement in this country. I like to say that solidarity needs to be experienced in order to be believed. And what I mean by that is that people need to see you out there doing the work, Mm. standing in solidarity with fellow workers. And I hope that that happens. I think that What I would caution is that we have moments where people, there are these big upsurges and then they kind of dissipate the energy. It doesn't leave anything really lasting. So I hope that that doesn't happen. Uh, Los Deliberistas is a model of workers that are continuing to organize, are expanding, figuring out how do we bring in folks that speak Bengali into this organization of predominantly indigenous workers from Mexico and mm-hmm. and Guatemala whose second language is Spanish. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we have that conversation? Yeah. And I think that that's like, I don't want to say the new face, but, it, you know, it's like what's happening next and now in terms of the labor movement. But this country, I mean, that's why I was like, watch those movies, because this country is built on the back of the labor and workers' rights movements that are tied to immigrant rights, that are tied to the movement for Black lives. Absolutely. Because, you know, everything in this country over here was built with free labor of Black people and Indigenous people. Let's just be clear. It was free extracted labor. Ah, que facil. Oh, how easy that suddenly, you know, you have all the riches of, you know, legacy money, but it was built on black and brown backs. Exactly. So these movements have always been tied. Over 150 years ago, my founding father of the United States of America, Frederick Douglass, helped form one of the first black labor unions in the country. We saw the massive March on Washington protest in 1963, where Martin Luther King was calling for labor equality for black workers, and it was part of the larger civil rights movement. Black and brown workers are also more likely to be exposed We just talked about this unsafe labor conditions and that even in the unions, there's issues of racism. We know this. We've seen in this country that, you know, from environmental justice to police and prison abolition, it really is multiracial, multiethnic coalitions and low income communities that have been at the forefront. And it's no different when it comes to labor organizing. And this is the part that inspires me, see, because this is the part where you know, the modern day Mate Wan and Norma Rays are like in Tar Heel in North Carolina. Yeah. This is what is inspiring, right? So, Lauren, how have the movements for racial justice and immigrant rights, in fact, helped to shape and transform the labor movement as we know it? And, and do you really, you know, you were like, I don't just cover immigrant workers, but is there a sense like they are the bloodline of what's next in the labor movement? 
Yeah. I mean, I think like you said, it's it's important to note the ways in which immigrants and people of color have been excluded from a lot of these movements, like the National Labor Relations Act itself, the like law that allows us to unionize, excludes domestic workers and farm workers. And so does the Fair Labor Standards Act. Like those workers don't get overtime pay or minimum wage guarantees. And like you mentioned, of course, also the unions themselves have a long a legacy of racism, you know, the AFL, which is now the AFL-CIO, once banned African-Americans and racial minorities for joining. And that was like the big house of labor at the time. You know, I would also say it is impossible to talk about labor history and activism without talking about race. And, you know, MLK, uh, the day before he was assassinated, he was out at the Memphis sanitation strike in 1968. Mm -hmm. The United Farm Workers in California has a long history of, you know, mixing racial justice and, you know, economic justice, the labor movement. Honestly, I think I'm a product. Like when I'm like, that is what me conscientizó. It is what brought me to consciousness here was, in fact, United Farm Workers and Martin Luther King. And they were both, in the essence, tied to racial injustice and labor. Yeah. Yeah. Most recently in Alabama, or a lot of people were paying attention to earlier this year in in April, the first Amazon warehouse to have a union election in the history of the U.S. was in Bessemer, Alabama. And the messaging around that union drive was extremely, you know, focused on racial justice. More than 80 percent of workers at that facility are black. And I believe over two thirds of Amazon's warehouses are people of color. So There are, you know, a ton of ties. And I just think, you know, even the labor movement itself, like union drives themselves can be framed as racial justice because we have evidence that black workers who are unionized are paid 14 percent more than their non-unionized peers. And Latino workers who are unionized get paid 20 percent more than their non-unionized peers. And this you know, goes over into healthcare benefits, stuff like this. So to your last question about, you know, is this the future? I think a lot of people are saying this is the future of the labor movement because this is the part of the country that's growing. This is the people who are feeding us, the people who are the working class in this country, and they will continue to grow. You know, and it it comes down to what we talk about a lot of Futuro Media representation and creating your own lane. So I just need to call out a feature that we've done on Latino Rebels this year. Um, it's called Rise Up Foo, like Rise Up Fool, right? Mm-hmm. And Tutti Alvarez, who's a truck driver from Chicago, one of the best writers I know. And he interviews Latino and Latina organizers in labor right now. That's all he does. And says, you know what? If we're going to change the representation and union membership, we have to show these faces of people doing the work and just start interviewing them. And people in the labor movement are like, wow, I didn't know that there were so many Latinos and Latinas in the labor movement. Mm -hmm. But Luis, take us home on this multiracial organizing. I know you've talked about it throughout the show, but what do you think is sort of the future? Like, where is that future? Where do we see it specifically? I know you mentioned the Deliberistas in, in New York, but how are the connections being made to lead to more change? Yeah, I mean, I think one way that we can see that is by fighting for internal democracy within unions. So within the auto workers, there's a vote uh, referendum so that members can elect their own leaders. So I was in a meeting about two weeks ago with auto workers in Silao, Mexico, and auto workers in Detroit. And when Detroit workers went on strike, the Silao workers supported them in Mexico. Mm. And right now there have been some labor reforms in Mexico that have allowed 
they used to call them Chahro unions because they were part of the institutional revolutionary party. Basically, they were controlled by them and they were top down. So we have right now a movement for democracy within unions. One fact that I'd like to point out is that there are 14 million union members. Of those members, black workers represent the higher share, 12.3%. White workers, 10.7%. Latino workers, 9.8%. And Asian workers, 8.9%. So this means that we must... As much as we fight the boss, we must also fight for democracy within our unions so that they are reflective of the interests of the membership that they're there to serve. All right, let's move on to our final segment, which we actually call binge worthy. We're going to make a detour here. What are you binging on? So tell us something that's just, you know, something that you're watching or reading or listening to that has just taken your breath away. And we'll start with you, Luis. All right. So I guess this is all connected. One film that I recently watched, because I've been watching a lot of labor films. I have a six-year-old daughter and she doesn't like movies. So <laughs> ironically, she likes documentaries and, uh, and, <laughs> and labor movies. I don't know where this is going. I think I might have fucked this up. But somebody asked me, what does your kid want to do for Halloween? I'm like, she wants to be a paleontologist. I saw people's disappointed looks on their face, but that's my kid and I love her. Oh my God. So we watched Pride, which is about mine workers and the LGBTQ movement in England. If you've supported LGSM, then thank you. Because what you've given us is more than money. It's friendship. When you're in a battle against an enemy so much bigger, so much stronger than you, but to find out you had a friend you never knew existed, well, that's the best feeling in the world. And it's about how we come together, get in the room, fight things out, and build that unity. Unity is not uniformity. All right. It's important to recognize that. Another movie that's related to poultry workers who Lauren has also, she did a great piece for Indies Times talking about Me Too and poultry plants. Mm -hmm. So shout out to Lauren for that great piece. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So the Packing House Workers, which is today the modern day UFCW that organized those workers in Tar Hill, North Carolina, Mm -hmm. they had pitched fights in the 40s. If you remember like 1919 after the race riots, the Polish workers, the African-American workers, they were all like fighting. And through this movie, The Killing Floor kind of captures that moment of those internal divisions. And it's not a happy ending because the divisions are not necessarily resolved. But there's one person that doesn't give up that union pin and fights for a multiracial union. And that's what it sometimes we have to yeah. think about. Like, what is that one person that we can move today yeah. and hope to grow that? So that's what I've been watching. Labor movies. Sorry, it's boring and on topic. Except that Luis is like, my six-year-old daughter is going to be that. That's what she's going to be. She's like, I want to be a union organizer because I watched it on a film. All right, Lauren, take us out. What's something that you are binging on? Well, thank you, Luis, for mentioning my work. I, I was already about to say that I highly recommend that people read Labor Notes, which is where Luis works. All right. Mutual binge crushing. 
Got it. The best like labor reporting of all the strike activity that's been going on, especially John Deere. They're essential and they have a lot of people writing for them that are extremely tied, not just as reporters, but as activists and organizers in the labor movement and have sort of a perspective that I don't think exists anywhere else. So if you're sort of looking to expand your knowledge or even getting involved, like that is a great place to start reading about labor news, but also to start organizing. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's great. Wait, wait, like, come on, come on. They're both on brand. I Come on. <laughs> I know. Nothing? Olivia Rodrigo? Yes, yeah, something that you, come on now. <laughs> Nothing? No guilty pleasure? Like disco, 1970s, exactly. dark chocolate and popcorn, <laughs> anything. I watched Succession. There you go. We got Succession. There you okay, go. Okay, I'm there. <laughs> Lauren? Um. Well, I went to a Japanese breakfast concert. I have half Asian pride. So this is specific to me, but they're a band that played like four nights in a row in Brooklyn the other night. And I think they're awesome and I love them. There you have it. There you go. Thank okay. you. We got you. <laughs> Lauren Cowrie Gurley, labor reporter for Vice Magazine's motherboard. Luis Feliz Leon, writer and educator with Labor Notes. Thank you so much for bringing it to our show in the thick. To Julio and me, we are so indebted. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. Uno, dos, Remember, dear listener, go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us because I know you learned a lot just now. Yeah, that was like a college class. That was like serious. That was like a PhD right there. Exactly. Also, remember, you can listen to us on Pandora, Spotify, wherever you choose to get your podcasts on. Check us out on the web at inthethick.org. Follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at In The Thick Show and like us on Facebook and tell everyone you know to listen. In The Thick is produced by Noor Saudi, Harsha Nahata, and our New York Women's Foundation Ignite fellow, Lisa Salinas, with editorial support from Mike Sargent and Charlotte Mangin. Our audio engineering team is Stephanie Lebeau, Julia Caruso, and Rosanna Caban. Our digital editor is Luis Luna. Thanks to Raul Perez for recording me. The music you heard is courtesy of Nacional Kept and ZZK Records. We'll see you on our next episode. Thank you so much for listening and supporting In the Thick. We feel the love. Sending it back to you, dear listener. Bye. I'm going to go watch Matewan now. And Norma Ray. <laughs> Norma Ray. I know. Bye, y'all. Getting better contact lenses, just so you know. Okay, how long is this taking? Right? You've been talking about the contact lenses for like four months. It's a whole Harlem story. <laughs> <laughs> the opinions expressed by the guests and contributors in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Futuro Media or its employees.